This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. And this is the Goop Podcast, where we bring together thought leaders, scientists, healers, creatives, and seekers. I'm so grateful to be able to interview these bright minds and share their incredible wisdom with you. And I especially love listening to the conversations that are led by my brilliant co-host and friend, Erica Chitty. Erica is the CEO and co-founder of Loom, and she's been a part of the Goop family since the beginning days. We believe that simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. I'll let Erica fill you in on her guest today. Today's guest is Ellen Vora. She's a board-certified psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and a yoga teacher. Her new book, which is out today, is called The Anatomy of Anxiety. In it, she explores how anxiety is a whole body condition and that our mental health is as linked to our bodies as much as it is to our minds. This understanding has been profound for me, and I'm excited that Ellen's book is finally out in the world. Today, Ellen walks us through what our anxiety is telling us and why some anxiety should be embraced. We talk about the seemingly benign factors that might be throwing us out of whack, the connection between our gut, our immunity, and our mental health, and she shares foods that she finds helpful for minimizing anxiety. She also gives us a rundown of her go-to recommends for all her patients when they come to see her. And we talk about the unique connection between women's menstrual cycles and anxiety. Okay, let's get to my chat with Ellen Vora. I think, you know, it's interesting. I find culturally, we have a very fixed idea of what a psychotherapist is or a therapist is and what a psychiatrist is. And I think you really turn that whole model on its head in many ways. So I want to dive in and talk about your new book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, which I'm loving. It is so full of so many unlocks. And I, I there's a couple different things I really want to unpack with you. But the first thing I want to start with is what's the difference between false anxiety and true anxiety, especially in a time where all of us are in a way that 
many of us have not experienced in our lifetime are coming up against both visible and invisible threat and having to acclimate and reacclimate into our lives. Yeah. So it's interesting. For me, it was a departure from how I was trained. I was trained to classify anxiety according to the DSM, that sort of Bible of mental health where anxiety can either be generalized anxiety disorder or OCD or you know, panic disorder with or without agoraphobia. And the idea behind this classification is always to steer management. It's to say, well, what's indicated here? If you meet criteria for this diagnosis, then should it be medication? Should it be cognitive behavioral therapy? And since I take such a, you know, wholesale different approach to anxiety, to mental health in general, that classification wasn't actually guiding management meaningfully for me. So what I started to find was that what was much more useful was to divide anxiety into two categories, what I call false anxiety and what I call true anxiety. And the caveat around false anxiety is that it's not you know, it's not to invalidate the very real suffering of false anxiety. Like I was in a state of what I know now was false depression for about a decade. That that was very real life altering levels of suffering. There's a realness to false anxiety. The false word there speaks to the fact that it's avoidable. It's unnecessary. It has a physical basis and there's a straightforward path out of it. And true anxiety, on the other hand, is not something to pathologize. It's not something that we're going to gluten-free and decaf coffee our way out of. It's an inner compass. It's really our true North. And it is how we are in a dynamic with our personal lives, our communities, the world at large, where we're getting a nudge from within telling us something is really not okay here. Slow down, pay attention, give this your conscious bandwidth. And then take steps accordingly, like honor the message you get and heed it. And I think that when we don't have a process like that around our true anxiety, we can feel really helpless. We're just stuck in the mire. We're just wallowing in the awareness of everything that's wrong in the world. And when we tune into it and transmute that energy, let that anxiety fuel us toward purposeful action it doesn't feel, we don't feel quite so helpless in the face of it. Then we start, it transmutes it into a feeling of purpose. So I love how you're explaining that false anxiety is impacted by a very clear environmental or or a tangible factor. And that true anxiety is something that it's within. When you say within, are you identifying that it's a neurological, neurochemistry issue? Yeah. So I don't even necessarily think of true anxiety as like, you know, within existing in contrast to like a different kind of anxiety that's environmental or without. I think that false anxiety, it's caused by a physical state of imbalance, something in the physical body. And, you know, we're really indoctrinated with the idea that mental health issues are this genetically determined chemical imbalance. And that plays a role. I don't deny that, but it's not the whole story. And I sometimes find that that chemical imbalance is itself a downstream effect that what's causing that interruption in normal serotonergic transmission is it's a downstream effect of something else going on in the body like inflammation. And so with true anxiety, I don't even necessarily think of that as super rooted in a neurochemical basis. I think that it's like much more in the realm of intuition 
where it's just, it's kind of in the gut. It's like our knowing something's not okay here. And I've been steamrolling over it in my life, not slowing down and paying attention to it, not being real with myself about this. And so, yeah, I think, you know, if, if we could one day point to the neurochemistry beneath that, I'm, I'm up for that, but I don't feel like we're there yet. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. What's interesting to sit with that you just said is this feeling that something's not okay, this inner knowing or this intuition, which brings me to what I think is my favorite chapter so far in the book, which is about women and anxiety. Because I, I do think, and this is just, you know, an ideological belief that I, I, I have pretty high conviction about living in the culture that we live inside of, which you do really bring in those cultural components, which I think are, are so important, you know, living in a culture that is inherently misogynistic, that doesn't feel safe for women or people that identify that way. Non-binary people can quite comfortably get tucked up inside of this as well. There is this sense that you pretty much constantly don't feel safe, whether you are aware of it or not. And there is this sense of, you know, dis-ease and how, you know, we're existing. And especially when it comes to things like contraceptive drugs, aka birth control, knowing how many women are on that, have been on that. Again, and this is not a conversation to negate the valuable contribution that that intervention has in our lives, but really thinking about the connection between that and anxiety, I think is so compelling. And also just the menstrual cycle and anxiety as well. As someone who taught about the menstrual cycle for a long time, I'm very aware that there is a difference in our kind of, not necessarily capability, but just our resilience really based on whether you are pre-ovulatory, you just ovulated, or you're just about to ovulate, or you're post-ovulatory and you're about to get your period. So would love for you to just talk a little bit about those pieces in terms of birth control, the menstrual cycle, and anxiety. Yeah, I mean, being, you know, identifying as a woman, being in a female body, all of these ways that there are all of these environments in which it's very obvious that we don't feel safe. And then there are these ostensibly safe environments where we also on, on a more subtle level sometimes don't feel safe. And I go into that. It's certainly been my own personal experience when I 
navigate the medical system. And it's been the experience of many of my patients as I'm always getting this kind of insider look, or I have like front row seats to my patients interactions with the medical world, because they'll come be with me. It's a whole witch's circle. We're all holistic. It's super feminine energy. And then they'll go see another doctor and they come back to me feeling pretty bullied. And it's always subtle, you know, it's always with smiles and, but it, but they don't feel heard. They don't feel seen or understood and they don't really feel like their idiosyncratic or unique needs were addressed or acknowledged or validated with birth control pill. It's, you said it perfectly. It's a both and like on the broader public health scale in terms of women's liberation, like I'm all for contraception, you know, thank God for that. Could we take different approaches? Yes. But I think that on an individual basis, it should just be a bigger exploration. And the reason I have hesitations around exogenous hormones, like the birth control pill is that I now have far too many patients than I could possibly count who, when we really look under the hood and understand when did their mental health history begin? It was usually within a few months of them starting the birth control pill. And it, it's always a little bit like we never think to point to that. They were 14 or they were 16 and maybe they were having irregular periods. Maybe they were having acne. Maybe it was for contraception, whatever the case may be. They went on the pill. And then a few months later, they're starting to report weepiness or just not feeling like themselves or feeling a little bit more emotionally volatile. And so then they get plugged into the system. They get started on an antidepressant. Maybe that causes a little bit of sexual side effects. They add Wellbutrin. Now they're having some anxiety. You add a benzo. They're not able to focus. You add a stimulant. They can't sleep. You add Ambien. And sort of, I see them wash up to shore a decade later and telling me about the diagnoses they have. They have depression, they have anxiety, they have ADHD, they have insomnia. And we start to peel back these layers and understand that, you know, and not to deny the, the very stark reality of, you know, certain neurodivergent conditions like ADHD, depression, anxiety. I'm, I'm here for the reality of these conditions, but I also want us to always be aware when is something that we identify with actually a side effect of a medication. And I have a lot of patients who, it seemed to all begin with the birth control pill. And if we almost recapitulate the process and peel away the medications, peel away the birth control, actually address their health in a more functional medicine way and get them into a state of balance. And that's when I see that we actually really, it's up for grabs, whether any of these diagnoses still feel true for them. And so I've had many patients walk away from their entire relationship to the mental health system simply by getting back to the basics and getting off birth control pill. So it's not always, but I've seen that enough times to be skeptical and just to want to make sure that there's always informed consent about the fact that hormones can impact our mood, because of course they do. We know that. We know that from how we feel when our hormones drop off in the days before we bleed. So it, it stands to reason that ingesting exogenous hormones is of course going to have some impact on how we feel. So when you say get back to the basics and some folks are able to really put a lot of their mental health diagnoses behind them, what are the basics? What does that look like? Well, if I think about like that 14 year old who was having irregular periods or had acne and then got put on the pill, when we strip away all of this different kind of mixed chemical information that's 
almost pinballing their physiology in all kinds of different directions. And we strip all that away. And then we're just left with their physiology, their body as it functions. There is still often a lot of underlying imbalance, but it's not something I'm interested in band-aiding. It's something I'm interested in identifying the root cause of and correcting that. And so, you know, sometimes you just have acne when you're going through puberty, that can be just normal. And sometimes there's something more sinister going on. Sometimes there's a lot of systemic inflammation or a dietary intolerance or something going on physiologically that's having the hormones be a bit out of whack. And that's why the periods are irregular. And so I always just want to get down to no confusing signals overlaid and understand, does this person's body work like clockwork? Are they pooping every morning? Are they sleeping well? Do they have energy? Do they get a period every 28 days or so like clockwork? And if it just functions in that way, great. And if it doesn't, then to me, there's still some underlying imbalance that we can address. And then there's the cycle, which you mentioned earlier. And that's, we're in a moment right now where thank God more and more of us are becoming aware of it. Could it one day be something we're taught in junior high? I think that would be pretty great. But if we have to learn about it in our late thirties, early forties, so be it for right now, it's better than never. But basically there's a different, for lack of a better word, vibe to the different parts of our cycle. And when we start to understand that we can leverage it and what's happening, you know, for the most part, for many of us is that we're taking our cycling bodies and we're trying to fit it into this you know, work world that was designed by men for men that doesn't cycle in the same ways that we cycle. And so that's more of a 24 hour cycle. We're on more of a month long cycle that corresponds with the, the moon. And you know, it sounds too hippy dippy, but it's actually the truth. And so when we start to understand this is the phase of my cycle and the follicular phase, when I might have more energy or feel more outgoing, feel more easygoing, I want to do speaking engagements. I want to do social events at that time. But then our luteal phase can be a lot more internally focused. It can be a time when we feel more tender. I find that my tolerance for BS goes way down. And that culturally we've been taught to sort of villainize and say, well, we're being bitchy or we're being irritable. Like we're the problem. But I actually think there's truth serum to the late luteal phase. And these are insights that we should really be paying attention to. And so I think that when more of us start to understand our cycle, not pathologize the shifts in our mood, but understand it's part of our, it's just a hormonal fact of life that we might be a little bit more tired and want to take a bath and stay in later in our luteal phase. Once we start to understand that we don't have to resist it. We don't have to blame ourselves or start jumping on with qualitative judgments of I'm lazy or, you know, why am I flaking or why am I not feeling focused on this and, and just start to support it and give ourselves the space for it. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of the Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster. They're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of the Kardashians premieres May 23rd streaming on Hulu. I really love that description of the luteal phase having a, a truth serum 
vibe to it because I think that is such a positive way of seeing a time where we do have less of our guard up in a lot of ways and there is more sometimes more perspective whether that perspective is more negative or more neutral or positive it's just the ability to speak up tends to show up i'm really curious about your feeling around the gut brain connection and i would go as far as to say the gut anxiety connection given how many people struggle with ibs and other gastric issues what's your take on that here's what i think is the the most important new insight I think we've now arrived as a culture at a place where we kind of appreciate the top-down communication that happens from the brain to the gut. Like we now understand if we're stressed, if we have a big exam, we might have worse digestion. We might have diarrhea before a big speaking engagement. And so we understand that our mood and how we feel impacts the gut. And I think the really important insight to take away is that it is a two-way street. It's a reciprocal relationship. And just as much as the brain can impact the gut, the gut also impacts the brain in a number of different ways. The gut has a direct hotline, a direct line of communication via the vagus nerve up to the brain reporting on the state of the union. And if everything is okay in our gut, you know, that communication is going to be like, everything's copacetic down here. Go have a great day. But if we've taken a course of antibiotics for a UTI, or we're eating something routinely that we don't tolerate, or we're sensitive to certain pesticides that are common in the modern American diet, we're going to have a disruption in our gut flora. We're going to have a decrease in the diversity of the ecosystem of our gut flora. And we might have inflammation in the lining of our digestive tract. And then the message that gets transmitted up to the brain is things are really not okay down here. Rest, feel lousy so that we will actually get into a state where our immune system can start to heal this and feel lousy so that that might motivate us to make slightly different choices. And, and I think modern life is an assault on the health of our digestive tract. It starts in birth, you know, and this is by no means to shame or blame anything around different, you know, empowering life-saving birth strategies, things like cesarean sections, but it is a reality that that does impact the gut flora of the offspring and the baby and and then also you know whether or not a baby's breastfed exposure to antibiotics diet based on sugar and alcohol and all of the con sort of foods of our conventional food system that can be pretty disruptive to our gut flora all the way up to the fact that we live in chronic stress and we're not outside in nature getting exposed to the microbes in soil we're not living on farms with animals getting exposed to the microbes from their feces and so all of that is these aspects of modern life that mean that we just don't have the diverse ecosystem that keeps things healthy in our gut and trains our immune system to discern the difference between friend and foe. And then our immune system starts to get dysregulated. It starts to overreact to benign stimuli, like with allergies, or starts to attack self-tissue and lose tolerance of self, like in autoimmunity. And it also can underreact to genuine pathogens. And we see that with people with immune dysregulation. And, and this is all related to the fact that in modern life, it's really hard to have a balanced, properly regulated, properly tuned immune system. And the gut is central to that. What are some of the ways that we can gently start to push back on kind of all of the things that you know we're up against? 
maybe starting with foods, what are some of the baseline things that we can be putting into our bodies that's going to be more supportive? From there, for folks that are dealing with autoimmune issues, where do we start in terms of navigating that? Yeah, with gut healing and with autoimmune healing in general, with gut healing in particular, I think about it as you remove what might be irritating your gut, you add in what might soothe your gut, and then you create the conditions for your gut to successfully heal. And removing is sort of those common culprits that many of your listeners have already been hearing about. It's, it's bandied about a lot these days, but it's a little different for all of us, but it's typically things like gluten and dairy. And under the radar one is the industrially processed vegetable oils. And then I find that adding in things that soothe the gut, bone broth is really effective. Ghee is quite soothing. Turmeric can be helpful for recalibrating the immune system. Collagen is a kind of nice supplement form of bone broth. So there are a lot of different ways that we can support the healing and the repair of the gut lining. A supplement called glutamine is, is useful for some people as well. In terms of probiotics, I usually steer my patients towards fermented foods and encourage them to eat it in conjunction with starchy tubers. So that's sort of the probiotic and the prebiotic packaged together. And that makes it more likely that the beneficial bacteria will, will successfully colonize our gut. And then creating the conditions for the gut to heal is usually the afterthought and probably the most central piece, but it's the one that's, you can't just prescribe. You can't just pop a pill. It's about rest. It's about doing less. It's about self-acceptance and gentleness and changing our whole relationship with our body and the kind of ways that we're talking to ourselves and holding ourselves. And, and then I think squatty potty is also really helpful. And that's something that I think most people just doesn't hurt to have it so that we can be approximating the anatomical position for evacuating the large intestine. <laughs> a lot of that makes total sense. Yeah. Making yeah. poops easier it, and, you know, getting, you know, eliminations are so important. I mean, like that yeah. is a whole, that's a whole thing. Yeah. So there was a story in the book that was pretty striking about a patient with insomnia and you shared that they went through every single lifestyle intervention, CBT, you know, all the things, full gambit. And then you suggested that they go camping and something really interesting happened there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think sleep hygiene, it's kind of one of the staples that everybody tends to struggle with from one time to another. We all struggle with sleep. It's so elusive in modern life. And I think it's eminently treatable, but it requires just a little bit of awareness and strategy. And the central focus of my approach to sleep is around light. It's the understanding that our, our circadian rhythm, our sleep-wake cycle is cued by light. And that was a foolproof design on the proverbial savanna of evolution, where it was we were by definition surrounded by sunlight during the day and by definition surrounded by darkness at night. And so that sunlight allowed us to release cortisol and we'd feel awake and alert during the day and kind of starts the clock, lets our body know this is morning, this is afternoon. And then perhaps most importantly, after sunset, we no longer are seeing light. And that transition to darkness is critical for us to secrete melatonin and create the conditions to feel sleepy and sleep deeply through the night. 
And I use these strategies with my patients. I get them to dim the lights in their home after sunset. Most of my patients have a pair of blue blocking glasses that they'll put on at sunset and wear until bedtime. They're not bringing their phone into the bedroom and doom scrolling until 11.30 p.m. And so all of these things can be protective. That patient who I discussed in my book, he really... we tried everything. And I started to understand he was just more sensitive to the artificial light of modern life than most people. He had ambient light pollution out of his windows. It was just really hard for us to achieve anything that approximated evolutionary conditions for him. And so we did have a little battle about it where I was like, you might want to try this, go camping. And he, he wasn't someone who was like into that. So he was a bit resistant, but he did try, which I really appreciated from him. Like he was willing and open. And it was remarkable. It was such a striking moment in my tenure as a psychiatrist where he slept like a baby for the first time. And I I think at that point, it'd been nearly a decade since he'd slept well. And so it really helped galvanize for me an understanding of this is no joke. Like there is something about the cues of nature, of bright light during the day, darkness at night, even being close to the earth, the, the surrounding gestalt of the sights and sounds and smells of nature and the cooling off that happens in the evening. All of that is how we're designed to be cued to sleep. And it's really hard to approximate that in modern life. It's not impossible. There's all these kinds of strategies we can do, but for that patient, it required the real thing and it got his sleep back on track. Yeah. I love that. Especially just the, those cues being able to point them out to ourselves and, you know, kind of be able to develop that that flow or that ritual or that pattern that you know you you do if you have a small child or if you've ever taken care of a small child especially under a year you know the whole kind of unlock with that early parenting is just rhythms and repetition and rituals that really do follow you know the stages of the day and i'm curious if there are any other lifestyle changes that you recommend when someone comes in with chronic anxiety or or a mental health issue Yeah. So with anxiety, I I must admit the first place my mind goes is always to blood sugar. And it's such low hanging fruit because it happens a lot. It's a common cause of unnecessary stress and unnecessary anxiety. And it's such a quick fix. And so if I meet somebody who tells me, you know, they're having panic attacks, I do a lot of reconnaissance around what are the patterns of their panic? What are the patterns of their anxiety? And often I'll see a pattern emerge, which is that it relates to when they've missed a meal or they've had something sweet or some refined carbohydrates, or as I call it, coffee drinks that are secretly milkshakes. And so their blood sugar spikes, that's chased by insulin, then the blood sugar crashes. And the design of the body is to respond to a blood sugar crash with a stress response. That's just the design. I don't make the rules. And so then just that blood sugar crash causes this five alarm fire in the body. And that stress response can feel synonymous with anxiety. So for many of my patients, their anxiety, this thing that feels like such a part of their life, so inescapable an identity that we ascribe so much meaning to. Also, we say it's because of this in my life or this going on at work, but sometimes it really is just the brain making sense of a physical sensation. And that physical sensation is a stress response. And so I will always encourage patients to really overhaul their diet and eat a diet that's really supportive of stable blood sugar. It's substantial, it's nourishing. It's, it's this radical act of self-love and feeding yourself really nourishing nutrient dense foods 
more healthy fats, more protein, getting your carbohydrates from starchy tubers. Some of my patients look at me like, you know, the eyes roll back in their head and they're like, there's just no way I'm going to get to that. And so there's a hack that can help, which is using something like almond butter and just taking a spoonful at regular intervals, maybe one spoonful at 10 AM, a spoonful at two in the afternoon, one before bed. That strategy has helped a lot of my patients create this kind of safety net of stable blood sugar, and it will blunt any blood sugar crash that's superimposed over it. And so for a, I've had a handful of patients over the years who just walked away from their longstanding relationship to panic attacks with that intervention alone. I have loved this conversation so much, primarily because I think it's deeply actionable. And that's always something I'm really looking for myself, you know, as a seeker, it's, you know, what can I take from this and kind of put into my life. And so I'm so grateful that you've written this book. It was just, again, there's so many small takeaways and larger unlocks that I think are so helpful, especially as we start to move back or move forward into a life that resembles the life we used to have. I've seen it support a lot of people who come into my office and it's really, it's a buffet. There's a lot on offer in this book and don't let that overwhelm you. Just feel what you feel drawn to, what feels accessible and doable. And I hope that that at least lets you decrease your suffering and your anxiety some amount. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Erica. Thanks for tuning in to my conversation with Ellen Vora. Her book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, is out today, and I hope you'll pick up a copy. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the Goop Podcast.